Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Corinthians. Going to be in the New Testament. We're going to study the book of 1 Corinthians. As you're turning there, I'll just begin by way of intro. As you know, there is no shortage of stories throughout history of individuals, organizations, or even churches that had great and promising beginnings, but then over a period of time lost their way and didn't finish as well as they started. The church at Corinth stands as a glaring example of this. Its rich beginning made it seem as if it were going to be invincible. Founded by Paul, had teachers like Apollos and Timothy. It was a dynamic and diverse community of faith, blessed with spiritual gifts, sitting at a crossroads of commerce and culture, that positioned it to be a powerful church with regards to world missions. Yet within a brief period of time, the church at Corinth declined into mediocrity and chaos as the weight of sin pulled its members into a deep, dark pit of shame. So out of deep spiritual concern. The church's founding pastor, the Apostle Paul, is led to write them a letter. Paul established the church somewhere around A.D. 50-51 when he spent, as some of you are aware of, about a year and a half, 18 months, we are told in Scripture, there establishing that church in Corinth. He did that during his second missionary journey, and you can read all about that in Acts chapter 18, as it gives us all of that information. The year here is now A.D. 56. So Paul has been gone four and a half or so years from Corinth. He is on his third missionary journey and is writing this letter from the city of Ephesus because he has received some disturbing reports concerning moral leniency, among believers in Corinth, the city was, was already infamous for its sensuality, along with its sacred prostitution. Even its name in the first century became a naughty 13-letter word. <laughs> to Corinthianize was synonymous with immorality as well as the practice of prostitution. To remedy the situation, he sent the church a letter, which based upon chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians is a letter that we do not know of. It has been lost. And we're told that right in chapter 5. He re- here in chapter 5, Paul refers to that letter that he wrote that we do not know of. So again, it evidently lost somewheres in time. So what we call 1 Corinthians is really the second letter that Paul had written to Corinth, to Corinth, okay? So he has received a delegation 
sent by a church member in Corinth named Chloe and reports to Paul news about the existence of some divisive factions that were beginning to really occur within the church. And so before he could write a corrective letter, another delegation showed up at Ephesus from Corinth, arriving with a letter full of questions for the Apostle Paul. We know this because we find that in the seventh chapter and the 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul immediately sent Timothy back to Corinth to help correct conditions. Chapter 4, verse 17 tells us that. He then wrote the letter that we now refer to as 1 Corinthians. No other letter in the New Testament gives us a clear insight into the life of the first century church than 1 Corinthians does. In it, Paul provides straightforward instructions for the things that plagued the church then and unfortunately continue to plague the church today worldwide. The remedies that Paul provides, the biblical solution and answers that he provides for the church in Corinth continue to be the solution, biblical remedy for the church today. Why then? That's why 1 Corinthians becomes a very important letter for us to study. The letter contains an unmatched revelation of the, of the cross of Christ as a counter to all human boasting and pride and arrogance because of the humility, obviously, attached to the cross of Jesus. Paul points to Christ as our example in all of our behavior and describes the church as the Lord's body. And especially important are the beneficial consequences that he'll speak of, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So having said that, let's begin right at verse 1 of this letter written to the Corinthians. It says, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Let's be sure that we understand what I think Paul wants us to fully understand in his introduction. When it says here, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, this is not Paul saying, hey, I'm working at it and I'm climbing the ladder to attain this office called apostleship. No, that's not what is being described here, but rather he is providing a definition of who he was. Not trying to be, but called by God, he is an apostle, called out and sent out by Jesus Christ. One who had authority, not of his own, but that of Jesus himself. Because of what Paul would be saying in this letter to the Corinthian believers, that authority that is being established right from the very get-go is, is just being put in place because of it will be needed and understood as he begins to instruct them and bring discipline in this letter to them. We also notice that another name is included in the greeting. Did you notice that? 
says Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. This is interesting, actually, because if you go back to chapter 18 of Acts, there is a Sosthenes mentioned there. You see, Paul has been there. He's it's part of the time when he was in Corinth for that 18 months, establishing and building the church. During that time, we are told in Acts 18 that an, an angry mob had approached the Roman proconsul complaining about Paul's teaching. Okay? And, it, and the, the, the scripture there in Acts 18 just tells us the crowd. So we're not really sure is it Jews only or is it both Jews and Greeks? We're not real clear. But they bring their complaint and the proconsul is going to make a response. It, it says in, in chapter 18, before Paul could even speak or respond and give some defense of his own, the proconsul speaks up and says, I don't want anything to do with this. This is your thing. This has to do with Jewish law and custom. Get out of here and go deal with it yourself. And then in Acts 18, we are told that angry crowd, that angry mob, all worked up, I suppose, right in front of the Roman proconsul, turn on a guy and beat up a guy by the name of Sosthenes. And who is this guy? He's a leader in the Jewish synagogue at Corinth. <laughs> now, why they turn on him keeping in mind that Paul is present, and that's who they're mad at, they beat up <laughs> this Jewish synagogue leader. Now, the reason why is anything but clear, because we're given no, no answer to that. We, we just don't know. Some scholars suggest that this guy, Sothenes, is actually the one who kind of led the angry mob to the proconsul, and they're upset with him because he's so poorly argued their case, didn't get anywhere with it. Others suggest that maybe he was already beginning to show signs of turning to Jesus Christ. Some others even suggest that part of that angry mob would have been Greeks. And this is just a, an evidence of some of their anti-Semitism kind of showing up and taking it out on this Jewish synagogue leader. In any case, we just really don't know. But I'm mentioning all of this. If this is indeed the same person, think about it. Which I believe to be very likely just because of how Paul mentions him. There's no other identification. It is as if they know exactly who Paul's talking about. And our brother Sosthenes, just like there's no other identification attached to him. So I think it's likely that it could be the very same person then if so, evidently, perhaps at that point of getting beat up, <laughs> for whatever reason he got beat up for, he, he somehow comes to that place where he makes a decision to just go ahead, might as well just give my life to Jesus and converts to Christianity. And then later, as we see here, joins Paul in his, and becomes a part of his ministry team in Ephesus. Let this be an encouragement to us. How? Why? People who are most aggressively 
opposed to you today because of your faith, because of your testimony, and maybe even because of the good news that you have been sharing. Those who are most aggressive and oppose you most vigorously are in very, can very likely be those who are under the most conviction because of your life, because of your testimony, because of your witness. The very ones who are closest to conversion. Let this encourage you. So just let them take a few more hits from their worldly friends, a few more hits from the Holy Spirit, and sooner or later, like Sosthenes, they will turn to Jesus Christ. Folks, don't give up. Amen? Amen. Don't be fooled as they act out <laughs> their under heavy duty conviction brought on by God's spirit. So just keep at your testimony and your witnessing. Verse two. So after Paul you know, identifies himself and the man with him, he says to the church of God in Corinth. He now identifies the recipient of the letter to the church of God in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul now, as I say, identifies the recipients. But notice with me, he doesn't refer to them as the church of Corinth, but the church of God at Corinth. This church of God that happens to be located in a city called Corinth, as I've already said, is in an interesting spot. Corinth was a city in south-central Greece that was prosperous economically due to its location geographically. It's a port city, okay? Think L.A. Harbor. Think New York Harbor. Think of the busyness there, 24-7, ships coming in and going out, the commerce, the goods coming in, the goods going out that would take place. That's the city of Corinth. It's a busy, wealthy port city. As a result, Corinth became a very prosperous city. But here's the deal. It was just as wicked as it was prosperous. Remember, the 13-letter 13, 13 naughty word, okay? In other words, you see, every night, history tells us, 1,000 temple prostitutes left their temple, the temple of Aphrodite, the love goddess, the main god of Corinth, and hit the streets, recruiting business. But this is what's really tragic in the name of worship. In addition to this, Corinth, like Athens, you remember Paul had been to Athens, it was that philosophical center. Corinth is right next to them in that. It was a philosophical place also, another favorite of the philosophers. This made for an interesting mix, can you imagine? A city engaged in heady conversation during the day and depravity and immorality by night. Clearly the church that Paul is describing here to the church of God in Corinth 
isn't a building with padded pews and stainless glass, but the body of people saved through faith in Christ and called together to live in community with one another. In fact, at its root, the Greek word for church, and some of you are familiar with this word, the Greek word is ekklesia. You know what it means? Called out. In application to the church, the idea is of a special group of people called out from the world to be a part of a new corporate body under the headship of Jesus Christ. Put differently, called out from a world of darkness under the headship of the spirit of this age and delivered and rescued out of that, placed into a world, a kingdom of light under the headship of Jesus Christ. We could stop here and finished out the rest of this sermon just talking about the importance and the significance of what our lives are to represent and look like in this world as called out ones. We've talked about it before in times past. Is it, is it any wonder that the world looks at us and says, I see very little difference between you and me? How called out are we in terms of our displaying Jesus Christ? So in a very real sense, folks, because we are the church, we don't go to church. But as a part of the church, we bring the church with us when we gather at our places of worship. And we take the church with us when we return to the world. Yes. We believers are the church. Not only are we called out, Paul continues on and he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus to be his worldly people. Oh, no, that's not what it says. You would think that's what it says by how we live our lives to be his holy people. The word sanctified, we've talked about this as well, literally means to be set apart. So now look at what Paul's doing. You're called out as the church of God. Not only are you called out, but now you are to be set apart. The Greek word has its roots in the idea of marriage, actually, wherein one is set apart to someone and is for someone. So from the very get-go, Paul comes in with the powerful word to the Corinthians as he is basically saying to them, hey, I understand, I know the reputation you Corinthians have. But guess what? As followers of Jesus Christ, as those who are now a part of his kingdom, who belong to his church, you're called out. Yeah. You're set apart. Yeah. It's time for a new rep. 
No more to Corinthianize being a naughty word, but to belong to Jesus being the best example that they could be. And Paul says, I know what your rep has been, but it's time to establish a new one. Called out, set apart for God's service. And that service is exclusively because you are called to be his saints, his holy ones. And listen, folks, like Paul did not need to work at becoming an apostle. It's who he was. I think he is also saying to us here, we don't work in terms of work to earn sainthood. Being a saint isn't just for a holy few. You see, every one of us who are born again is from heaven's perspective a saint now. Once again, what is a saint? Someone who goes with the flow of God's spirit. Not the spirit of this world, God's spirit as one who is called out and set apart. For the sake of clarity, let me just add a little something here. Theologians speak of justification as the past one time event of our salvation. Sanctification as the ongoing transformation that continues throughout a believer's life. Glorification as the future completion of our salvation when we are resurrected in glorified, imperishable bodies. I can hardly wait. How about you? When our salvation is complete at that point in time. So the saint who has been sanctified is one who is devoted, consecrated, pure, and holy in God's eyes, uniquely set apart for God's use. Don't miss that. Pretty important for God's use, fulfilling his purposes and his will. Verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Charis, or grace, was the typical Greek greeting. Shalom, or peace, was its Hebrew counterpart. Here, as in his other letters, did you, do you notice, do you, do you notice with me that Paul joins the two ideas together, bringing the Greek and the Hebrew together, the idea of grace and peace together. Paul joins these two, always putting grace first because a person cannot have true and lasting peace unless he first understands God's amazing grace. Amen? But we must understand that Paul has more in mind here when he mentions the saving grace that transferred them from spiritual death to spiritual life, same being true for us. The grace and peace that Paul mentions 
would have also intended to bring to mind those virtues, those characteristics of God that belong to the Christian life that must be present to maintain what? Harmony within the church community. As the rest of this letter will demonstrate, as we will see in weeks to come, Paul wants the Corinthian believers to, to be known as the gracious people of God who lived at peace with one another. Those who understood they are where they are, transferred from darkness into light, not because of anything that they have done, not because of anything they've been worthy of or have earned, simply because of God's grace. And Paul is saying, how dare you exclude that from others when you have been the recipient of that grace? How dare you think yourself better? How dare you look down your noses and treat one another as if they were trash, as if they weren't as good as you? Paul is saying, be reminded of that. It's that grace that must mark your lives. And remember now, he's saying, I understand your past reputation. You've got to have a new one. And he attaches this idea of grace and being gracious people to that new rep that we are to be displayed as we display Jesus Christ. Be gracious people, loving people, kind people, patient people with one another. And basically, as we will see in this letter, Paul is saying, and when the world sees that, they're going to want to join you. But when they don't see it, like most of the time they don't, because of all the divisive factions that exist in our day, why would they want anything to do with us? Come on. But you're called to be gracious people. He lets us know. Not self-centered but others-centered. In verses, when, you get, when we get to verse 10 and on through the rest of the chapter, we'll see exactly why the Corinthian Christians especially needed a measure of grace and peace from the hand of God. Yet before reprimanding them for the things that they were messing up in, Paul first gives thanks for the troubled church with regards to what was right within their community of faith. Look at verse 4 with me. He says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. This is, this is interesting. I want you to see this. Paul doesn't say, I thank my God for your righteousness. <laughs> Because the Corinthians at this point weren't being very righteous. He doesn't say, I thank my God for your faith. Because at this point, they weren't being all that faithful. Paul does, however, say, I thank my God for his grace given you in Christ Jesus. A true and right statement. And although he realizes the seriousness of the situation, and he's not, he's not um, playing down anything. He realizes the seriousness of the situation with him. But imagine with me, if you at all can, Paul, 
as he's writing this letter with a gracious smile on his heart, expressed on his face as he wrote, when I think about you, I thank God for his grace. In view of Paul's sincere estimation of the spiritual goodness of the church in Corinth, because of God's grace, one commentator writes, Paul looks at the Corinthian church as it is in Christ before he looks at anything else about them. I think this is so, so huge. Something that we need to adopt. Instead, of, he, instead he reminded the believers of their high and holy position in Jesus Christ. In verses 1 through 9, hear this now. In verses 1 through 9, he described the church that God sees through his son. From verses 10 on, he will describe the church that the world sees. If the first nine verses of this book were removed from the text, it would be, I think, impossible for any reader to come to anything but a fairly pessimistic view of the church at Corinth, leaving them even possibly hopeless for the church today. But because of God's grace, there is hope. Amen? There is hope. Verse 5, For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Verse 5 lets us know they were enriched, it says. They were wealthy, not in a secular kind of way. That's not what he's talking about but spiritually because of how they knew the gospel of Jesus Christ and they understood it very clearly and were very, very effective at articulating that message. That's what he's saying. As he also would include the use of spiritual gifts that God would have given every single one of them to understand and to articulate in their testimony and in their witness the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 6 also informs us that the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in them. Confirmed means it was established. It was made sure. It was authenticated. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the same Greek word refers to the miraculous signs and wonders that God used to confirm the gospel preached by the apostles. The Corinthian believers had this, Paul is saying. And Paul says their faith and their salvation was real. It was authentic. And then verse 7 relates that they weren't lacking in any spiritual gifts. 
as they were waiting for the Lord to be revealed. In other words, for the Lord's return. As a result of the Corinthians' genuine saving faith, they did not lack one single spiritual gift. I think that's amazing. And I want to just pause for a moment. This just kind of remind you, this is why partially it is so important that we as the body of Christ, we as a community of faith, here in this part of town known as Wellspring of Life Church, as much as possible, not miss the opportunities that we have to bring the part of the church that we bring when we gather here for worship. I want you to see how incredibly important it is. You see, you bring something, whether you want to think you do or not, and we're going to mention that here in a little bit. No matter how bad you may have been or how giftless you might think you are. It's not true. You bring something. And by your being present, you aid in the body being whole, complete, and healthy so that it would be said of wellspring, you do not lack any spiritual gift as we all understand our responsibility to one another. Is that clear? I hope it is because I think sometimes we lose sight of that. I think sometimes we opt for other things and we make it much more important than this. Now, obviously, there are times when we're gone. There are times when we're gone. And that's not what we're talking about in vacation or something like that. But if just something better comes along <laughs> and you choose it over this, can I just be blunt? Yes. That's irresponsible as a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen. Because they knew Christ's coming was imminent, that it could occur at any moment. They were engaged in ministry and serving, utilizing those spiritual gifts with a sense of urgency in light of that prophetic reality. Because eternity drew nearer with every day. They lived in earnest anticipation of that moment when they would see Jesus, longing to stand before him and hear those words we all want to hear. Welcome, enter, good and faithful servant. A comment here I want to include. All of this tells us something very important. The flow of spiritual gifts, either in an individual or in a congregation corporately is not an indication of super spirituality. What do I mean? I mean, it's an indication of grace. When someone has a gift of healing or a word of prophecy or otherwise moves in the miraculous, our tendency 
is to assume that that person must be super, super holy. Isn't that what we do? The Corinthian church encourages on the other side of that. They weren't being very holy at this point in time. But the gifts are still there. God is still wanting to use them in spite of them. <laughs> you see, the Corinthian church encourages us in this way. I want you to hear this now. Think about this. The gifts of the Spirit are not dependent upon our attaining a certain level of spirituality. I have this question for you. At what point then, if you were to use that kind of thinking, would you know that you had arrived? It would, you can't. At what point? And I'll guarantee you, your level is going to be different than somebody else's level. Yeah. Oh, I'm there. And someone else is going to say, no, you're not. <laughs> you got to be like me. Isn't that what we do? You know, we don't say those things, but we act that. There's simply these gifts as God has placed them within you that makes us a healthy, whole, and complete body of Christ. They're simply a matter of our being recipients of God's grace. Never forget that, church. And upon what God wants to do in and through us, regardless of us. Now, this is important because I think, as I started to say a little bit ago, oftentimes you and I, you know, we will kind of like wake up on Sunday morning and, uh, oh, man, I've been terrible this week. (laughs) And the enemy starts beating up on you and telling you all kinds of lies. You don't don't need to be down there. You don't need to go to that Bible study. You don't need to go to that worship service. You don't bring anything to the table. And like I told those people last night, church, you know what you need to do at that point? You need to tell the enemy to shut his mouth. And call it for what it is, lies from the pit. And if you buy into it, you are saying, God, your grace is nothing. And what you accomplished on the cross is nothing. It's what you're saying. You tell the enemy to shut his mouth. To keep, stop telling those lies. And you get up, you take your shower, comb your hair, brush your teeth, and you get down to that place that you gather for worship. And trust God that he'll use you in some way, shape, or form to encourage and build up another believer that you gather with. I need a louder amen from you today. Verse 8. But but here's the deal before we get to verse 8. Here's the deal. You see, I think, I, I totally believe once we fully get and understand that we allow ourselves to be immersed in God's love and grace then our desire becomes then our hearts cry out then we find the enabling power of that grace to live holy and righteous lives fully for him 
and for others. Verse 8. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, you know what I think here? Paul is, as he's been talking about grace and peace and faith, he's demonstrating a great faith just in making that statement. Think about it. The faith is not in the people of, of God, but in God himself. God's been good to you, Corinthian believers, Paul says. And he'll see you through. He'll keep you firm all the way to the end. Despite the fact that they were and we are relentless sinners. <laughs> In eternity, we will be blameless saints. The word blameless means to be beyond accusation. This will occur, Scripture lets us know, on the day Christ returns. And this coincides with the believer's resurrection with our earthly bodies. When our earthly bodies, subject to sin, suffering, and death, will be miraculously transformed into perfect, immortal bodies by Christ's resurrection body. In our new glorified state, Nobody, hear me now, nobody in heaven or in hell will be able to hold anything over our heads. At that point, nobody, not even the enemy himself, can remind you of your past and bring it up. It's a done deal. Blameless saints in the presence of our God. We will be perfect in that sense, before him. You say, why? Maybe you ask, how? Let's look at verse 9. God is faithful. <laughs> Who has called you into fellowship with his son. There's that idea of called again, called out, set apart. Who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We're going to make it. Not because of anything within ourselves, not bec because of what we can do or earn or what we're worthy of, simply because Paul says God is faithful. So all the potential of that is in place. That's why I think the psalmist says that we are held by our Father's right hand. I like the image of that and the imagery of that in my mind. I'm a grandfather and some of you are. And I'm, one of the things I, I just so love doing and take great delight in is when I'm out in public with our grandkids is being able to take them by the hand and safely lead them across a street or something and, and get them to whatever the destination is safely. And the rest of you understand that. It's a great delight of mine. But sometimes our grandkids are getting a little older now. Sometimes they think, Papa, I don't need to take your hand. I can, give, I can do it. And we do the same thing. God's reaching to us and we take our hand back. 
I got this. I can do it. I don't need you, Lord. I can handle it. And we all know how foolish that is, don't we? When you hear me talk, I like, talk it like that. Can I ask you a question? Then why do you do it? <laughs> why do I do it? The psalmist says, our God is faithful. And even though we do this, he still takes us by the hand and promises, based on his faithfulness, he will deliver us safely home. The work of God was confirmed in them, verse 6 tells us, and it was also confirmed to them in the word. So we have witness of the spirit within us, witness of the word before us, guaranteeing that God will keep his covenant with us and save us to the very end. This guarantee, hear me, church, is certainly not, obviously, certainly not an excuse for loose sinful living. Amen? Amen? Rather, it is the basis for a growing relationship of love, of trust, and of obedience. As we finish up with our first nine verses and our beginning of 1 Corinthians this morning, I would like to conclude by emphasizing one particular important point. I kind of mentioned it in the beginning and want to finish it with it in the ending here. A rich and impressive beginning does not guarantee the same kind of ending. And even though you and I have a faithful God, it still comes down to our choice, doesn't it? Whether we will allow him to change us and transform us into the image of his son. May it be said of us individually, corporately. They started great and they finished well. May our lives be lived and finished up like Paul's. It says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. That longing for his appearing is what Paul has been talking about. Called out, set apart, consecrated, and living holy and pure lives for our God, unto him. Amen. Father, we just thank you so much that you are our faithful God. And this morning, Lord, early this morning, I was just reminded once again of the fact that in spite of me and in spite of all of us, you still left the splendor of heaven and came to this earth, took on the form of a man, but endured the agony 
the pain not only of rejection, you coming and being rejected by the very ones whom you love and we're about to die for. We're in that group as well. We are not innocent. It was our sin that pinned you to that cross. Our ugly sin. But yet you still came. Yet you still gave your life that we might have life abundant and eternal. May we be reminded of that on a daily basis as we would be resolved in our hearts to live for you as called out, as set apart, as the holy saints of God in this day and age. And I pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I